0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Aspiring Abolitionists. Today is my 21st birthday, so it's our birthday edition, and I'm so excited to release this episode on one of my favorite pieces of legislation. Now, when I say it's my favorite, it's not because I like the content inside of it. It's my favorite because it drastically highlights the pitfalls of federal enforcement without considering the most at-risk stakeholders. When I think about the type of career that I want to build in politics, I want to make sure that we're always keeping the people who are at the most risk. And the key point and in the focal pivotal point of all policy. And this 1994 crime bill, you guessed it, did not do that. This bill was well-supported by many Black leaders and many members of the Black Caucus voted for this bill. Furthermore, mayors from major cities, mostly urban, also threw their support, stating that they did not exactly agree with all the components, but something was needed to reduce crime. This bill was signed into law in 1994 by Bill Clinton, and it was intended to be a reduction tool, but actually increased the rates of people going into prison. Instead, it also led to an increase of mass incarceration that affected many black and brown people. It also led to stricter sentencing, more prisons being produced, and more aggressive styles of policing. It's originally known as the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. It is the largest crime bill in the history of the United States and consisted of 356 pages that provided for 100,000 new police officers and $9.7 billion in funding for prisons. Now I'm gonna go through the main points of this bill. So the first main point is more cops on the street or on the beat, as it's said in the bill. This provided for grant programs for increased hiring of police officers. It also provided a ton of money for training, scholarship programs, and housing, all fuel to put more cops on the street and bring more cops in from the communities they were policing. They also introduced the Troops to Cops program that allowed members of armed services to become law enforcement officers, particularly in localities with base closures. So if you had a local base and community that closed down, those armed services or the people who worked at that base um, that are members of the armed services would then be eligible for this program. Some of the key points that we hear about all the time is violent offender and true and truth and sentencing laws. So violent offenders must serve 85% of their time before they are eligible for parole. Localities would be granted funds if since 1993 there has been an increased percentage of convicted violent offenders sentenced to prison. Increased the average prison time which will be served in prison by convicted violent offenders sentenced to prison has increased the percentage of sentence which will be served in prison by violent offenders has an effect at the time of application laws requiring that a person who is convicted of a violent crime shall serve not less than 85% of the sentence imposed if the person has been committed on one or more prior occasions in a court of the United States or of a state. Of a violent crime or a serious drug offense each violent crime or serious drug offense was committed after the defendant's conviction of the preceding violent crime or serious drug offense One of the most interesting things that I saw in this bill was that prison overcrowding is not seen as a violation of the Eighth Amendment and is not seen as cruel and unusual punishment. So when we look at something right now where we're having COVID-19 and outbreaks in mass in federal prisons, state prisons, and local prisons and jails, a lot of times these prisoners are not allowed to leave for the sheer fact of overcrowding or that everyone around them is sick because technically according to the 1994 crime bill, none of their rights are being violated. This bill also disallowed Pell Grants from prisoners. This provided for a sharp decrease in prison education programs. These effects are still being felt today as Betsy DeVos is furthering this ideology. A lot of times when people talk about the idea of prisoners re-entering into society, one of those most basic needs is education. By disallowing the Pell Grants to be provided to prisoners, this really led to inaccessibility as far as educational programs to begin with, if there were any. It also provided that closed military branches can be used to build prisons and introduced the Ounce of Prevention Grant Program, which introduced summer and after-school programs, mentoring, tutoring, and other programs involving participation by adult role models such as DARE America, Programs assisting in promoting employability and job placement, and prevention and treatment programs to reduce substance abuse, child abuse, and adolescent pregnancy, including outreach or programs for at-risk families. So for example, this provided for like midnight sports leagues, usage of Olympic centers for recreational pay, and established corridors for safety for elderly people the model intensive grant program gave funds to no more than 15 hot crime cities as long as they worked to reduce crime in a variety of ways including community programs and efforts to reduce crime furthermore it created a fund for communities that involved a non-refundable line of credit from the secretary of health and human services to fund the creation of jobs for unemployed low-income or rural citizens It also increased funding for Parks and Recreation. If you don't remember from episode zero, my dad is the director of Parks and Recreation for Baltimore City. This was pretty interesting to me because I have been able to see the positive impacts of a robust Parks and Recreation program. For example, somewhere like Baltimore, which is where my family lives, we actually got the opportunity to intern in the state's attorney's office where I saw some of the programs that they did in partnership with the Parks and Recreation program, which included this program for 8 to 10 p.m. on hot summer nights, um, Friday and saturday which is when most of the crime would occur during the summer we would go into these neighborhoods host events and basically just get people off the street and give them something to do especially during the summer as far as like finding somewhere to eat finding somewhere for your kids to do especially if you're in a low-income area parks and recreation departments are basically the lifeline for that sort of thing in your locale or your municipality They also introduced the Violence Against Women Act, which emphasizes training law enforcement officers and prosecutors to more effectively identify and respond to violent crimes against women, including the crimes of sexual assault and domestic violence. It also provided for substance abuse treatment that can take up to one year off your sentence. So if you're in a prison and you qualify for substance abuse treatment and you go through with the process and you do well, then they can take up to one year off your prison sentence. But this is depending on the Bureau of Prisons providing funding for this program. So as you can guess, this is not happening a lot. They also established drug courts so before 1994 there were not drug courts so this helped to detract the traffic in our regular court system because right after the crack and cocaine epidemic and kind of going into the 90s and 2000s where everything was becoming a little bit more accessible especially street drugs they provided this type of drug court system so that people who were non-violent offenders so basically people who were caught using or you know anything that you can do nonviolent with drugs would kind of go through this court instead of regular court it further provided guidelines for death penalty and life imprisonments considering offenses that garner that sentencing such as espionage and murder basically just fully fleshing out the idea of what the death penalty is what life imprisonment is and what type of crimes or inf- infractions could lead to that sort of sentencing and the biggie is that it introduced mandatory minimums have you ever heard of 25 to life that came from this bill before that judges had a lot more discernment in their sentencing when it came to more violent crimes but with the introduction of mandatory minimums that discretion was taken out so the discretion is whether the judge will give you 25 to life it also restricted the sale and manufacturing of assault rifles with limited explanation it kind of basically said that as long as you had a gun before this date then it didn't really apply to you kind of making sure that it didn't infringe on anyone's second amendment rights and i'm excited to see what we build upon that considering that we're 25 years down the line and still kind of working to mitigate the problems that is assault rifle access in the united states Expedited deportation of non-citizens convicted of committing aggravated felonies. So this provided the funding for ICE to expedite their deportation of anyone who is committed of an aggravated felony. Um, A lot of times if you are charged with anything, felony or misdemeanor, you can be deported. But the expedited deportation is just to get you out of the United States as quickly as possible. Fun fact, the sexual offender registry was also created in this bill, stating that a person who is convicted of a criminal offense against a victim who is a minor or is convicted of a sexually violent offense to register a current address with a designated state law enforcement agency for the time being specified in the subparagraph of this bill. Also, a person who is sexually violent predator to register a current address with a designated state law enforcement agency unless such requirement is terminated under another subparagraph in this bill basically it provided that people who are charged with sex crimes have to be on this registry but also provided kind of a way to maneuver out of the registry if you meet certain qualifications and that will have to be assessed by a judge it also provided grants for dna identification that allowed more work for smaller forensic labs a lot of times when you had this increase in crime some of these smaller labs did not have the robust technology to be able to persecute these crimes and this bill provided funding for them to do that Furthermore, it provided and established the missing Alzheimer's disease patient program, meaning that it provided localities with money to create a system. So if someone goes missing with Alzheimer's, the cities and localities now have the funds and resources to create a patient program so that everyone can kind of look to find them and also having the resources to put out police officers to search for that person as well. And Congress's favorite thing to do is to create a commission. So, of course, they created a commission with the 1994 crime bill. This basically helped to develop a comprehensive proposal for preventing and controlling crime and violence in the United States, including cost estimates for implementing any recommendations made by the commission. A biggie that I don't really like about this commission is that it also involved people who had private interest when it comes to the prison system. I think that is the biggest problem when it comes to crime right now is this idea that private prisons and privatization of crime is the answer, when in all actuality, reduction of all crime and all prisons should be the answer. And lastly, it created increased sentencing for several offenses, including hate crimes. So now if, say for example, Dylan Roof, um, he now has an increased sentence because he committed a hate crime. So some of the problems that I have with the 1994 crime bill, it's only two. The first one is mandatory sentencing minimums that cripple our judiciary system and its ability to evaluate crime on a case-by-case basis. So basically, also the three strikes are outlaw. So when you have people, a lot of my documentaries that I watch about criminal justice, they always bring these people who had these two low-level drug offenses Extract, they're out now they're at minimum in jail for 10 to 25 years so this type of mandatory sentencing minimum and three structure outlaw completely limits the judiciary system to take things that are small and petty and basically binds them to this idea that they have to go to jail for X amount of time my problem with this is that by creating a system where we're constantly putting people in jail for this X amount of time, we're still kind of creating this idea of a need for jail. If we're going to reduce crime, we need to reduce the number of jails and prisons, and this bill doesn't exactly influence or encourage that behavior. My second big problem is that it encourages broken window policing. So what is broken window policing? And here's an example from NPR. In 1969, Philip Zimbardo, a psychologist from Stanford University, ran an interesting field study. He abandoned two cars in two very different places, one in a mostly poor, crime-ridden section of New York City, and the other in a fairly affluent neighborhood of Palo Alto, California. Both cars were left without license plates and parked with their hoods up. After just 10 minutes, passerbys in New York City began vandalizing the car. First, they stripped it for parts, then the random destruction began. Windows were smashed, the car was destroyed, but in Palo Alto, the other car remained untouched for more than a week. Finally, Zimbardo did something unusual. He took a sledgehammer and gave the California car a smash. After that, Passerby quickly ripped it out, just as they'd done in New York. This field study was a simple demonstration of how something that is clearly neglected can quickly become a target for vandals, but it eventually morphed into something far more than that. It became the basis for one of the most influential theories of crime and policing in America, broken windows. So Rudy Giuliani also adopted the broken windows policing when he was a Southern District Attorney for New York. um, And also when he worked in New York City, um, specifically with the police department. So this problem intensifies with a new practice that grew out of program windows. It was called stop and frisk and was embraced in New York after Mayor Michael Bloomberg won the election in 2001. So if you don't remember, when Bloomberg first announced his candidacy, this is what people started bringing up all the time. Stop and frisk, stop and frisk, stop and frisk. And it grew from this idea of crime-ridden areas will always produce more crime, while Affluent areas will not. If broken windows meant arresting people for misdemeanors in hopes of preventing more serious crimes, Stop and Frist said, why even wait for the misdemeanor? Why not go ahead and stop, question, and search anyone who looks suspicious? There were high-profile cases where misdemeanor arrests or stopping and questioning did lead to information that helped solve much more serious crimes, even homicides. But there were even more cases where police stops turned up nothing. In 2008, police made nearly 250,000 stops in New York for what they called furtive movements. Only one-fifteenth of one percent of those turned up a gun. So why is everyone mad at Joe Biden? The idea is that the crime begins to rise again. Will Biden return to some of his older, tough-on-crime measures? The answer is no, but that is based on this platform. I encourage everyone to critically... Analyze every single platform of every presidential candidate, the vice presidential candidates, and also anyone that they have already talked about placing on their candidate. A lot of times it's not who's on the big seat, but what they plan to do when they're in the big seat and who is going to do those actions. So make sure when you are evaluating who you're voting for that you're going directly to their platform, not to think pieces, not to see it in or Fox, but to the actual policy. The solutions to reducing crime are not to attack the crime, but to attack the source. This is what the 1994 bill tried to do with this community programs, but coupling it with measures such as mandatory sentencing and hundreds of felonies added, it had a bit of a reverse effect. We are desperately in need for a bus change with our criminal justice system. If you're someone who believes you should always be tough on crime, please consider researching restorative justice and alternatives to imprisonment. After all, I am a bit of an aspiring abolitionist. This bill provides a lot of context for what we do not need to do when it comes to fighting criminal justice and the idea of reducing crime, but it also provides a lot of basis to what works and what we should do. The bill is not all bad. It just had some really bad parts that made some really bad effects. A lot of people have been attesting to this rise in mass incarceration to mandatory minimums and mandatory sentencing and the 3 strikes outlaw. But crime was already trending in 1994 and actually slipped off a couple years later. What this bill did and didn't do isn't really up to anyone to kind of have to figure out. Criminologists are kind of confused when it comes to looking at the effects of this bill because a lot of times reductions in crime can be led to multiple sources, not just a one. So the jury's still out on whether or not the 1994 crime bill did a lot of good, but it did do some bad. And I'm excited to see how Joe Biden and Kamala Harris kind of build upon this legacy of bad criminal justice policy to good criminal justice policy. This is not an endorsement because my podcast is nonpartisan, but I'm very excited to see what all of our candidates do to hope, I pray, to fight crime in a more robust and community sensitive way. Thank you so much for listening to my birthday edition of this episode. I hope you enjoyed my talk on the 1994 crime bill. I hope that you continue to look for robust policy, not only in your communities, but in the nation and in your state. And remember to register to vote. If you're in South Carolina, please use scvotes.org. And if you're anywhere else, just Google how to register to vote in my state. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.